y'all. Welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah Jane McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own stories. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. So I've been teaching people how to tell their testimonies for a long time. And one of the first things that people say to me is, well, I don't really think I have anything to say, or I don't think God would even like my story right now. They want to have a story that has a really nice beginning and a really nice end that's all tied up with a bow at the end. And I think we miss out on the journey whenever we devalue our witness testimonies in this way. So with that in mind, this week, the character that I chose was Jonah. Last week, I talked about Rahab, and she's the underdog. She's a harlot, taken and redeemed by the ever-loving mercy of God. It's kind of a feel-good story. Now, Jonah, on the other hand, is kind of the other extreme. He spends his life in service of the Lord and meets his ever-present patience. And yet, when Jonah has a declaration of God's character and sovereignty, Jonah is full of despair and anger, where Rahab found hope. Now, Jonah and the Whale is a classic. It's been told, animated, and filmed numerous times. And anytime you come across a Bible story like that, you should always stop and ask yourself if you're familiar with the story or with the scriptures. When I went back and read Jonah with inductive Bible study methods, I was, as always, blown away at how very unfamiliar with the actual scriptures I was. Jonah is just four small chapters. Altogether, it only has 48 verses. So in comparison, Rahab's story that we talked about last week in Joshua chapter 2 and 6 has 51 scriptures. This is the whole book of Jonah just 48 verses. We've packed a lot in those 48 scriptures, but we also miss quite a lot because it's dense. There's a lot going on. So you could pause this right now and actually go read the book of Jonah. I kind of read slowly and it takes me about eight to 10 minutes. So for here, I'm just going to hit the highlights, assuming that you've actually read all 48 verses recently. So here's the story. Jonah is a prophet, meaning that he gets messages from God and delivers them to who God tells him to. And one day, God tells Jonah to deliver a message to a town called Nineveh. Jonah instead runs to the harbor and books a ticket to a town called Tarshish in the other direction. So let's stop here and get a sense of our locations, our settings. These town names were known to the intended audience the people who actually lived in that area. But I doubt these names mean much to us in 2023 America. Now I'm going to link to a Bible atlas in the show notes. This kind of resource can be extremely helpful when you're looking at locations in the Bible. Some of them have archaeological like evidence to back them up. And just even seeing the names of where they were located on a map can really be helpful. So I got most of my information on these towns from my ESV Bible Atlas. 
So Nineveh was the capital and royal city of the Assyrian Empire, and archaeological accounts found in stone reliefs show the evidence that this nation was known for their brutality. It's located in modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. So Jonah is most likely living in Jerusalem where he serves a king, and he flees to a town called Joppa. Joppa is on the Mediterranean coast where the harbor is. So that means that Nineveh would have been northeast of Jerusalem, and Jonah flees in the opposite direction, to the west, and he books passage to a place called Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, even though it's fun to say Tarshish, but Tarshish is most likely in Cyprus or Spain in our modern day context. And it's mentioned a bunch of times in the Bible, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the books of the Kings and Chronicles. Now, we know from those other scriptures that Tarshish was a large trading port. They had a lot of goods coming in and out of that port to the kingdom of Israel and other places. And that probably explains why there was a readily available ship. So now that we have a sense of our setting, let's look at the plot, the events of what actually happened. Jonah was called and then he fled and he's on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea with some pagan sailors and a storm kicks up and the sailors are afraid. Now Jonah is deep asleep down in the bottom of the ship and he's woken up by the captain freaking out saying, call to your God, we're all going to die. So up on the deck of the ship, they cast lots. Now we've talked about this before, but basically just remember it's an old custom. It's mentioned in OT a few times, and it's in an effort to listen to the spiritual. Now this was used by followers of Yahweh, of God, but also by pagans who were listening to the spirits. They would throw down dice or maybe objects, and whoever it pointed to, or maybe they assigned numbers, doesn't really matter the logistics, they see that the lot falls on Jonah. So everyone on ship knows that this storm is Jonah's fault. Verse 7 says that the lot single Jonah out, and the sailors start to ask him a bunch of relevant questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What's happening? Now, Jonah does a really awesome impression of a holier-than-thou type caught red-handed. He doesn't actually admit to why he's there and why the storm is threatening all of their lives. He simply says, throw me overboard and this will stop. So he actually asked them to commit murder. They don't want to do it. They try and row to safety, but that doesn't work. And so eventually, as they're asking for forgiveness, they throw Jonah overboard. And enter the plot point that we all know, Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish or Jonah in the whale. So rather than obey God, Jonah runs, and rather than admit his wrongdoing, he asks strangers to become murderers to solve his problem. But rather than give up on Jonah, God creates a ridiculous way to save Jonah's life and give him another chance to show his prophet mercy and patience. Chapter two, we have a prayer from Jonah inside the belly of said fish, and he's humbled somewhat, and he's praying out to God. So this is generally where the story goes a little bit off the rails, because we could spend a lot of time discussing the validity of God's chosen mode of transportation. We could actually spend this whole time studying this prayer and what East and West means. But what we're here to talk about today is what God's character is and what Jonah's witness testimony has to show us about the gospel. Now, I believe that God's word is true. I believe that there are lots of literary devices in the Bible. And I also believe that ancient Hebrew people were amazing storytellers. 
But I also believe and know that if we focus all of our time and energy on the big fish, the whale, the survivability statistics of human beings without food and water, if we focus on all that, we've missed the point entirely. This story is like your story. It's like my story in that it's actually God's story. It might be through the lens of our experience, but it's still the story of God the Father in our lives. So put it in a Sunday morning type of way. When you focus on the big fish, you miss the big God. So let's move on from the fish. Jonah is spit back out where he started on dry land on the east coast of the Mediterranean and told to go to Nineveh. Now we're told in the scriptures of chapter 3 that the city is so large it takes three days to walk across it. After one day of walking, Jonah delivers God's message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In Hebrew, it's actually just five words, and it could be more accurately translated as overturned. Now the king repents, puts on sackcloth, and tells everyone in the kingdom to do the same. Even their animals, we see in verse 8, put on sackcloth, and they turn from their evil ways. They literally overturn their lives. So chapter 4, Jonah gets hot. The word literally means he gets hot. He's angry. And he essentially goes out to pout east of the city and watch to see if maybe Nineveh will be destroyed. And he tells God, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. Now, unlike Rahab's declaration in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 13, she found hope and mercy in declaring God's character. But Jonah here almost uses it as a condemnation of God. And we find out this is why he fled from God in the first place. So God responds in verse 4, chapter 4, with a question. Is it right for you to be angry? No answer. So now we have pity, party of one for Jonah. He's outside the city, and God has actually made a plant grow up over Jonah to shade him. And it says that Jonah is pleased by this. But then we see that God sends a worm to eat the roots overnight, and the plant withers. Then God sends a scorching wind to beat Jonah down. Pity party of one doubles down, and he says he wants to die. God responds again with that same question, but a little bit more specific. He says in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time, Jonah does respond. He says, yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. Well then. So God points out Jonah's attachment to this plant and his lack of basic humanity and compassion for the minimum 120,000 souls inhabiting the city of Nineveh that will now be saved from God's destruction. And that's it. That's where the narrative ends. It is so frustrating. (laughs) But then we take the time to sit and meditate with it and think about it. Now, this is actually a literary device. It's designed this way. By not telling you Jonah's response to God's pointing out his hypocrisy, it puts you, the reader, in the place of Jonah. He's asking you, is it right for you to be angry? So that's what happened. Now, there's obviously a lot to say about Jonah, this book, and how it relates to the overall story. 
But a reminder, again, today the point is to focus on the witness testimony that's in the Bible. What does this tell us about God's character? And how do we see the gospel here? So a few questions to think about. Does Jonah's story relate to your own? Have you ever run from God before? Have you ever felt that someone who didn't deserve God's grace got it anyway and it made you upset? These are hard questions, I know, but worth asking because I bet you can answer yes to at least one of them. Now, if we look at Jonah as a character in the narrative, the best place, remember, is to start with a keyword search in your Bible reading app or website like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible. So Jonah's name is actually first mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. His name literally means dove. And if we read this chapter in 2 Kings, we see that Jonah was a prophet to the King Jeroboam II. If you've spent any time in Kings and Chronicles, you'll know that most of the kings that were over Israel were not good. And Jeroboam is really not good. He reigned for 41 years and extended his territory, but did it through the oppression of people. He actually doubled down on the sins of his father. So his father was bad and turned from God and Jeroboam II said, yeah, I'm going to do that times two. So Jonah served a bad king. So when we get to the book of Jonah, we already know this about him. He served a bad king. And then the first thing in chapter one of the book of Jonah is that Jonah was disobedient. And we don't get an answer right away until chapter four of why. You could think about, you know, was Jonah in fear for his life because the Ninevites have a terrible reputation? Was he uncertain of the way and didn't know how to get there? Lots of things. But even if we don't understand why Jonah is running, we start to see his character on full display once he gets on the ship with the pagan sailors. He deceives them, not quite by lying, <laughs> which I'm sure any teenager will love to make the argument that is it technically lying if it's just omission? But he deceives them. He doesn't admit why the storm has come and all of their lives are in jeopardy. He doesn't tell them why his sin has communal consequences. Now, in the face of God's consequences, instead of repenting and being humbled, Jonah almost acts in spite. He says, fine, God, just kill me. And selfishly, Jonah asks the sailors to throw him overboard. They're resistant. They try to save him. They try to row to safety. And even in the face of mercy from strangers, Jonah doesn't repent. So he's humbled in his journey back to the eastern shore. And when he comes out, he is obedient. There is a change. But when he gets there, he does the bare minimum. Nineveh's going to be overturned in 40 days. Five words. And yet, it's successful. The whole kingdom repents and returns and faces God instead of their evil ways. What a miracle. That should be a delight. It should be a success. God has overcome one of the most evil nations on this planet. And yet we see his character again. He's upset. He is frustrated. He says to God almost in this snarky kind of way, I knew that you are a God of compassion. I knew that you have faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. And that's why I fled in chapter four. 
we get his answer. (laughs) He was disobedient because he didn't want God to be faithful. He didn't want to see God's love shared. So what does this tell us about the character of God? God will use imperfect people. God will use people who we would say have no right to be used by God. They could be believers and yet still falter all along the way. You could be in ministry, serving a church your whole life and still miss the point that we need to share God's love. All of those things, God says, I'm going to use you anyway. We see that God is patient and compassionate. It would have been very easy for the book to end at Jonah chapter one. He disobeyed. He got on the ship. A storm came and they threw him overboard. The end. Like that would have been a fully justified story. (laughs) But this is how crazy God's love is. He said, instead of giving up on you, I want to give you another chance and another chance because I love you just like I love the evil, crazy inhabitants who skin their enemies in Nineveh. I also love you and I want to give them a chance and I'm going to give you another chance. We see this persistent patience love and compassion all throughout Jonah's journey of basically spitting in God's face. So what does this have to tell us about the gospel? Jonah's witness can feel a little disheartening if you view it from the lens of Jonah, right? He has to spend three days in a very most likely uncomfortable weird, smelly mode of transportation when he wanted to just die. And then he has to go and walk in the desert and go a long way. And that couldn't have been very fun. Like God asked him to do some pretty hard things. He has to face his enemies. I mean, the closest thing that we can kind of relate to is Nineveh being like a terrorist state, like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and us just walking into their camp and saying, God says this place is going to be overturned in 40 days and hope, you know, that they don't kill you (laughs) and then have to deal with them all being rescued. And they've hurt you. They've done bad things. Maybe they've hurt your family. They've definitely hurt your people. And so to look in the face of your enemies and wish God's mercy on them. I think it's one of those things that we all very easily go, well, of course, I want my enemies to have mercy. Of course, I would want my enemies to be redeemed and saved. But it's a whole nother thing to have it actually happen in your face. After dealing with facing that, he goes to the outside of the city. He's like, fine, I was obedient. He sits in his pity party (laughs) and has a plant that gives him shade. But God deliberately takes it away from him. And so we could view that as spiteful on God's part because we don't like to think about God making us uncomfortable. We don't like to think that God would give us pain. We definitely don't like saying that God is okay with bad things happening to us. That doesn't preach well. (laughs) But the Bible actually doesn't preach all that well. (laughs) Some of it's really hard. And this is why we do this type of study, that we do this inductive, like looking at just what's on the page kind of study, because it's important to wrestle with those things. Because maybe you look back on your story and you see a time that was filled with hardship 
and pain and having to look in the face of someone who hurt you and forgive them and pray for them and seek salvation for them. That is what we're called for in the gospel. Like we get to live on this side of the cross, which Jonah didn't have that luxury because we get to see the whole picture that Christ came for everyone. He wants everyone in his church. It's not just about the Hebrew people, but it's also for the Ninevites. It's also for harlots like Rahab. Those enemies can be turned into faithful brides. That's the gospel. And we get to live in that. Like, just think about that. (laughs) That amazing truth that whether we like to put Jonah in a corner and point and say him over there, he didn't do right. But I think if you look in the mirror and look at your own testimony, you're more like Jonah than you'd like to admit. I know that there were times I adamantly ran from God. There were times when I did things in spite of God. And yet, his persistent patience was there all along. And he never gave up on me. And sometimes the journey was like being in the belly of a fish. It was uncomfortable. It was painful. It made me want to die. But at the end was Christ's salvation and glory and redemption. Is that something you can relate to? Is that something that hits home? Is that something where if you think about the things that happened in your life that you don't talk about at parties, can you see God's persistent patience and how you were never alone? Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish in chapter 2, he says this in verse 3, You, saying God, you, God, threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to my neck, and the watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. That is a lonely, dark place. That is when you feel like there is no light left. We see in Jonah's witness that that place exists. And sometimes, sometimes, God puts you there so you can remember that he is the light that's going to get you out. He never gives up on you. And even when you're in that dark place at the foundations of the mountains, like the lowest of the low, you're not alone. God's right there waiting for you to say, you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. Just giving him the credit, saying it's because of you that I can get out of this pit. It's because of you that there's light in my life. Of course, maybe you're lucky enough to never have known those deep, dark despair moments. Maybe you have been lucky enough to have life shine a little bit brighter on you. Even if these dark pits aren't part of your witness testimony, you probably know somebody who they do have this in their story, where they have hit rock bottom, 
They have had evil intentions. They have had shady paths and decisions that you don't approve of. So I'll ask you the same question that God asked Jonah, that literary device that puts you, the reader, in the story. Is it right for you to be upset? Is it right for you to be angry? Is a plant more valuable than people? Is your pride your justification? Is that more important than a family member, than a relationship, than a friend? Every witness has value. Every story deserves to be told because God's in those stories and it's about Him. So even if your story right now doesn't have that big pretty bow on the end like Rahab's story, maybe your story is more like Jonah's. Right now it's just cut off with you being mad at God and God trying to teach you mercy and compassion. (laughs) It's still worth telling. Even if you don't tell it out loud, it's worth writing down. Because sometimes the best way to trust in our future with God is to remember our past and how he's been there all along. Maybe your story doesn't have the ending that you would like it to right now. But that's why it's so important to tell it. For everyone else who's in that same place, it's really good to hear that you don't have to have it all figured out. It's really good to hear that there are stages in your life where you can be upset with God, where you can not like what He's doing because He still doesn't give up on you. He's not going to leave you. He is big enough to handle all your emotions. He is big enough to survive you being mad at Him. He is big enough to bet your life on. He's worth it. And that is really good news. (laughs) 